The strength of the owner is very often the weakness of the company. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome closers. We have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today we're doing it live with none other than Jeremy Pound from Juicy Results. Jeremy, I've had you on the show before. Uh, welcome back. Thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to talk about a very, very important subject, and that is sales, which I know you know well. So thanks for coming on, man. Glad to be here. Every time we get together, it's a good time. Yeah, absolutely. So today we're going to be kicking things off, talking a little bit about what it looks like to have a plan for 2019. Um, for those of you that are here live on the broadcast, first off, if you could just chime in, tell us, let us know you're here. Where are you coming from? Type in the city that you're in right now, just so I know that we've got some people listening on this thing live. I see we do have some people in the room here, but go ahead and just drop a chat in. I see Todd O from Atlanta, Eric out of Spokane, Jeff from Austin, Texas, but just down the road from me, Hunter, Matt, Julie. Guys, thanks for letting me know that you're here and alive. For those of you that have questions, drop them down at the very bottom. We're going to answer all of your questions on the backside of the interview, but uh, if you want to drop them now, go ahead and do so anytime that we're talking. So rather than putting them in the chat, drop them down at the bottom. Uh, Jeremy, agenda for today. We're going to talk about what it looks like to actually have a structured plan for success in 2019. And so where I want to start off the interview is around the topic of what a plan does not look like. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, hope is not a strategy. Let's yep. talk about some of the other things that are also not a sales strategy. The first one that comes to mind for me uh, is a lead source, right? Man, I found a place to get leads, you know, at APM or uh, or geek or pay-per-click or whatever. Why is a lead source not a sales strategy? Like what's the difference between the two? Uh, that's a really good point. And so I think it's so funny you say about a structured plan. For whatever reason, we as business owners, myself, I've been guilty of this for, for years. We think that that every part of our business is, is um, better with processes and structure except for the sales part, right? right for whatever right. reason, it's like, yeah, everything that applies to like, you know, all of these other subjects and areas don't apply to sales. And, and I couldn't disagree more. So I laugh as soon as you said a structured plan, I bet most people are like, yeah, I got, I got structured plans for everything else in my business, except for the sales part. Um, but yeah, so I, I love, I've heard you say this before and you crystallize something I've, I've seen happen so many times. You say it so well, uh, you know, a single lead source, uh, is not your plan, right? Because, you know, let's just think about it, right? We all have heard those stories about people who have uh, page one Google rankings, right? Number one right. Google ranking, and they wake up the next day and it's gone, right? And, you know, the other thing about that, even while you have the page one ranking, how do you predict that, right? How do you know if you get a call a week, a call a month, you know, 10 calls a day, right? There's no predictability to that. And that's not what I want for your business, right? I want predictable revenue so that you guys can plan your life, right? Plan your goals, plan your dreams. How do you know how to hire and budget if you have no freaking clue how much revenue you're going to be doing next year? So that's I'm on a mission to try to solve that problem. 
which is the expectation that we place on all the other departments, right? Every other department is expected to perform consistently within certain service quality parameters, but for sales, there's an allowance of more chaos. And the thing I think about is even if you have the lead gen, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can consistently convert those leads. And for a more aggressive owner that wants to grow, there's nothing more frustrating than knowing that you got the leads coming in, but the conversions aren't necessarily coming through on the backside. So, Again, back to things that a that do not define a strategy. Another thing would be hiring a BDM. Hiring a BDM is a great idea. I'm excited about having somebody in that seat, not having your property manager or the owner do sales on a part-time basis. Why doesn't sales on a part-time, as-I-have-time basis work, man? Like It sounds efficient, Jeremy. I'm managing my cash and my labor, but why, why does that tend to fail? Yeah, I think that is the seduction, right? Is, hey, I don't have to pay anybody unless they produce. And so, you know, I'm just going to get, you know, one, two, or even six part-time people. And hey, if they send me business, they send me business, right? That's an affiliate, right? That That's, you know, hey, that's gravy. That's icing on the cake. But you can't build your house on that sand, right? Because you don't know if they're going to produce. You have no way to hold them accountable. And, you know, by the way, one thing that salespeople are great at is telling you all the reasons why they can't sell that's not them, right? <laughs> so if you right, don't have right, a process, right. you know, if you don't have a process in place, then they're gonna convince you and you're gonna waste a lot of time thinking, oh, it's my pricing. I, I should be a percent lower or, oh, I need multiple plans. Oh, they're not selling because I don't have this, right? And you keep going back to the well and wasting your time instead of growing your company. And so those are the first issues that come to mind and some of those from a personal experience for sure. And you brought up a great one, that last one about pricing. Of course, if you lower your fees, if you lower your pricing, it's probably going to help. But what are you solving for? Are we just solving for sales? Or are we solving for revenue? Or are we solving for yeah. profit? If you're solving for profit, if you want to have something to eat at the end of the year, if you don't want to own a job, you have to guard your margins. So mm -hmm. you got to ask yourself, what constraint do you want to solve for? Is it just more bodies in the door? If not, what is the more enlightened thing? If it's profit, you got to know that you could either increase sales by lowering your prices or by getting better at sales, by having <laughs> a more structured, tighter, more effective process. So let's get into it, man. Let's talk through some of the basics and fundamentals that I've seen you implement in a number of my clients' businesses. We initially had a conversation, kind of heard about what you do, but as with most kind of partnerships or biz dev stuff, you don't know how it's going to work until you get boots on the ground. So you have, you've been into how many, um, how many property managers? clients have we worked together on now? What are we, what are we at? Somewhere in the mid teens, I would guess, maybe even getting close to 20. Um, but yeah, definitely with between the ones that we've already finished and the ones are, you know, some solid track record for sure. So what I like here is that rather than starting with property management, you know, at the end of the day, there's a limit to how much a guy like you cares about property management. Sales results is what you care about. Property management happens to be the specific playground. I actually appreciate that because sales and marketing and growth is a bigger conversation than just property management. But if you can combine the broad comprehension and acumen and then apply it deeply into one specific context and market, that's where the magic happens. Having done that, Walk me through how you kind of go through turning somebody from chaos to actually having a structured plan. 
Yeah, 100%. It's just to, to build on what you said, you know, it's funny. I've learned so much about property management and, and your community, by the way, and shout out to the community that you've built because you haven't introduced me to anybody that just hasn't been a whole heck of a lot of fun to work with. I mean, they've got great business models and, you know, I'm built. My, my whole mission is to find people who, you know, have 98% of the puzzle put together. And for whatever reason, they, they still do all the business development, development themselves. Or, you know, they, they got, you know, one referral source like we talked about before, and it's got them to a certain point, And then that referral, referral source is tapped out or gone and they're stuck, right? And they're operationally excellent and they just need to, you know, put that last little piece of the puzzle. I always like to think of my business as that last piece of the puzzle going in. You know, you can't start with me. You got to have a healthy business. And right. I'm just like the dial on the amplifier, right? Let's just dial that thing up. Love and it's, it. it's a fortunate position to be in that. So... So shout out to all you guys, because I've learned how what a great business this is and all the margins in it. Um, so so essentially, exactly that. I mean, it's about, you know, it's process. You and I, uh, as much as I love sales, and I love being around it. I'm an outsider in the sales industry because, you know, I approach it with an engineer like mind. And that's because, mm. you know, I ran a, a, a marketing agency for, for years. First, it was a website development agency. They turned a marketing agency and I was the only guy that could do sales. And, and honestly, I took pride in that. You know, I thought that was great. I could walk in every day. I was the rainmaker. My favorite book was How to Be a Rainmaker. You know, there was actually a book like that. I listened to it over and over again. And I just thought there was so much value in the business owner being the only one that could just go out and just shake the money tree. And you know, I went, I went to, to lunch, a little Mexican place across the street with one of my clients. And we were, you know, talking about hiring and systems. And I said to him, I said, man, I, I went on this vacation and I came back and everything was kind of chaos. And I was like, you know, one day I just want to be able to go away for like an entire month and the business is still running when I come back. And he looked at me and, and, you know, and, and, and to outsider, you know, certainly my perspective, my business was like five times the size of his. He said to me something that changed my whole, you know, attitude about this. He said, no, Jeremy, I want to go away for a month. And when I come back, I want my business to be bigger than I left it. That was like the biggest, you know, <laughs> I mean, I remember like kind of paradigm I left the whole day and I think I left the office and I just thought about that. And I was like, that's never going to happen with me. So, so I know that's a total tangent, but you know, I, I think a lot of us can relate to that. I like to share that experience because um, something that I've known to become true is that, and this doesn't just apply to sales guys, this is everything. The, the strength of the owner is very often the weakness of the company. Mm. And so if you're a sales, you know, focused owner, you need me more than if you're a weak sales leader, right? Because, because if you're a weak sales leader, you will find a way to engineer your way out of that. But if you're a strong salesperson, you know, the last thing you'll spend any time on is is replacing yourself. And that's the weakness mm -hmm. of the company. And I constantly reflect on that, Jordan. I think about that. I'm like, okay, where am I weak at? And what do we fix? Yeah, <laughs> totally. Really it's, so, it's so interesting when we've had actually some conversations with folks, when I've connected you with some folks in my industry that have had that stronger sales competency, it's almost like there's been a bigger hurdle of buy-in to get over. It's like, well, what are you going to tell me that I don't already know? Yeah. Well, what you're going to, that is not a proper heuristic for, re, for results. Competency yeah. within the organization is defined by 
results. So I may know a lot. I may be able to do a lot. But if it's all up here and is fundamentally non-transferable, if I fundamentally lean upon gut, that's a non-scalable model. You said two other things that struck a chord with me. The first was service quality. I'm curious, do you ever have to kind of maybe, I don't know what the word is, um, help folks kind of get over the fact that service is not enough, that being <laughs> number one in yeah. your market, being around for 20 years, I feel like that's a, that's a an impediment for some folks to just kind of yep. get off of the fact that how you see yourself and how you grade yourself is not the same as how the consumer sees you. Uh, what's the kind of mental paradigm that people have to work through to realize that if you build it, they will come is a lie. Yeah, you you just touched a nerve that you know may take up the whole rest of the hour because I'm so passionate about this. But um, you know, th there is a, there was a great article that that was I don't know it was in the let's just call it the Wall Street Journal, you know, in the '80s, and it's widely circulated in the, in certain business communities. And it it's basically it's the the headline is something along the lines of operational efficiency or operational superiority is not a substitute for strategy. And so we, as business owners, right, we want to know, we, we want a million reasons why you should work with us. We believe that, you know, we're the best. And, and why, why would we start a company if we're not going to build an amazing company? And so mm -hmm. we walk around, um, to use a technology analogy, we walk around as, as, as passionate salespeople and business owners with a hard drive of reasons why you should work with us, right? But when somebody calls us and they're 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 speaking to a new potential vendor, especially in a market like property management, where they're very likely going to talk to more than one, when they call you, they show up with a with like a little floppy disk. Remember those old like one point four megabyte right. floppy disks? Yeah. yeah. So you know, I'm old enough that we used to have to take those to school. That was like a required um, you know school supply. And all we tried to do was like steal video games for each other. That's all we would do. We would like take these and be like, "What game do you have? What can we steal?" And the, the lesson that I remember from that was you knew that the floppy disk was 1.4 megabytes. And if the program was any bigger than that, it didn't matter if it was 1.5 or 200 megabytes, which there was, I don't think there was 200 megabytes in the entire world back when I went to, high, when I went to elementary school. But um, the lesson was if, if you tried to copy a program over that was bigger than a disk, you know, what do you think stuck? Was it the first half? Was it the best part? No, the, the answer is none of it stuck. It was all or nothing. And so when our clients call us and they're, you know, they show up with their floppy disk on that first call and we're trying to download a hard drive mm. and nothing sticks. Right. And then you don't even get to the second part. Right. So whether you realize it or not, in the beginning part of a sales process, clients are only going to remember one thing about you. Okay. Mm. And whether it's one or two or one and a half, whatever, let's just call it one. That's all they're going to remember. So we need to be very intentional about what they're going to remember about us. Because as you alluded to, the consumer is not educated enough and prepared, nor do they care, right, mm. about how the quality of our service level and the nuances and everything. And so I'll give you the best example of that that is very recent. Uh, did you see that, that Payless did that prank recently? So Payless as a brand new the luxury store. Paylessa. So yeah, so for all our listeners, Payless, which is an economy shoe store, they're trying to get over the stigma of their shoes. They created a fake um, website called Paylessa, which is Italian branded. And they said it was the epitome of quality. And they sent their $10 Payless shoes to bloggers all over the country. And they told them that they were $350. And the bloggers raved about these shoes and the quality. And the takeaway 
is that the consumer doesn't know the difference. It's all branding and marketing mm. and positioning. And because it was Paylessa, it was Italian and it was $300, they were raving about it. And these were people that were horrified to know that they were promoting Payless shoes. So not only is that a lot of fun, but I think there's a powerful lesson in that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are certain verticals that really prove this concept out. Wine, fragrances, high-end watches, high-end anything, really. You're yeah. paying for the intangibles. You're not paying for the functional utility. And that's just the way it is. So when you lean into that conversation, it's a whole other host of considerations that can't that are uh, essentially non-falsifiable, the claims yeah. or the things that you're selling. You're selling an outcome, right? This is the realization that yeah. generally speaking, when consumers purchase drills, they're buying holes, not the drill. You got a subset of people that really want to talk shop about the drill, but generally speaking, people are buying it for a whole, which is simply an outcome. That's the area of focus here that helps you get off of bombing somebody with a 20 page email or a 40 page PDF, simply puking information onto a prospect as opposed to setting yeah. priority and assuming that it's a relational process over time with a start point and an end point. Talk to me about the start point. Actually, talk to me before the start point, bro. Talk to me about the qualification conversation that goes on internally to even set the stage before we talk to our prospect about what success is going to look like. Great point. So I want to I want to key in on qualification because uh, that's another area that I, I'm very passionate about. So one of my favorite sayings that I probably stole, my best sayings I steal and I just forget where they came from. Same here, is, man. You know, exactly. Uh, you know what R&D stands for, by the way? This isn't the saying, but we talked, I think we talked about this. You know what R&D stands for? Classically research and development. What What do you yeah. got for me? No, at big companies, it's research and development. At small companies, it's rip off and duplicate, right? And that's what we got to <laughs> do because <laughs> we don't have an R&D budget. Right, so right, we rip right. off and duplicate, yeah. But uh, anyway, back to the point is one of my favorite sayings is it takes exactly as much time to build a business that you love as it does to build a business that you hate. And usually the difference between that are the clients that you choose, right? And the mm -hmm. focus that you have. And that's mm -hmm. what qualification's about. And by the way, business owners, as you know this, one of the reasons why you've probably hesitated to hire a salesperson is because you're afraid of who they're gonna let through the front door. And so mm -hmm. one of the first things we gotta do is get really intentional about you know, who we built this company for, right? And so that goes back to positioning as well. You know, the, the, the guy who buys a Paylessa fake shoe is different than a Payless customer. Both are very viable businesses. There's nothing wrong with either one. Both, you know, uh, you know, can be the positioning you take on, but it's about choosing, right? It's about being on one side of the fence rather than straddling that. And so we say all the time here that um, if we do our job right with our clients, Jordan, then very soon the biggest bottleneck in their company will become their salespeople's time. So in the beginning, they've got nothing but time for these salespeople. But if we've got an efficient sales process and we're generating enough leads, then one day the bottleneck to growth is the salesperson's time. And, you know, I have a little chart that you can imagine, like that, that typical, like over time, the, the time and money that you've invested into a sale goes up. And at some point you've crossed the threshold where you've got more invested than the prospect. Mm -hmm. And that's okay, but you should only do that with the best prospects, right? So we need to ruthlessly qualify early and, and be very, we, we need to reward our salespeople when they have a serious yes or no conversation and they get the wrong people out of the pipeline early because mm -hmm. salespeople think a bigger pipeline is better, right? A tidy pipeline, a high quality pipeline is gold. 
a noisy, dusty, the way my garage probably looks right now pipeline is not valuable at all to us as business owners. And so it's all about qualifying them early. So this is actually what you just said is a really interesting phenomenon that I've noticed with sales. There's something intrinsically more interesting about a new prospect rather than closing or taking a, taking an existing prospect all the way home. Have you observed the same thing? <laughs> so uh, yeah, I've got a great story about this. This is so true. Shiny new objects, right? Every every new prospect is worth ten times what an existing prospect is in a salesperson's mind. So. My, my quick story about this is when I was running the marketing agency, which was, like I said, one of my first businesses, and I had a sales team of two amazing people that I, that I really liked. It was two of the best salespeople I've ever gotten to work with. And at that time, we did well, and we came up with this idea to offer a guaranteed SEO package, search engine optimization. I did that because everybody that called me said, I pay you all this money. Nobody guarantees SEO. And I said, I think we got a way to do this, right? And so we, you know, I won't go into the how we did it, but we, we could guarantee it. And we, we got all these serious satellite radio ads. So about five or six years ago, if you were listening to Bloomberg or CNBC in your car, you would hear juicy results, guaranteed SEO. And the phones would ring off the hook. But what I knew from doing this for years is that, you know, we were asking for a six month commitment of three to $10,000 a month. Right. That is not a one phone call close, no matter how right, good. The, right. Right. So think about that. So how do you close somebody who's on the third meeting when the phone's ringing off the hook and you're answering the new leads? And so anyway, what I learned was it, it, we had a big burst of business and then it didn't really work out. And then I tweaked it. And what I ended up doing was because the thing about media buying is you can't really control the lead flow the way you can with like pay per click or something like that. Right. Um, so we just we just advertised the first week of the month. That's all we did. So we only advertised the first week of the month. Why did I do that? Because I gave my team the other three weeks to close those deals. Because I knew that if the phone was ringing, they wouldn't be closing. Now, that's probably not a good strategy for you guys, but I think it illustrates the point is that we need solid pipeline management, right? And that's what we need to do. We need to manage our people and we need to train them to you know, focus on the people who are closest to writing us a check and then work our way backwards rather than doing it the other way. I love that. You're talking about some classic theory of constraints kind of stuff, right? You're talking about maximizing thorough put. How much goes through the final stage where you collect the check? Getting to 80 or 90 or 99% and not going all the way. The more, the more work that you have accrued in a category of 99% complete, that's called WIP, work in progress. And it's essentially a form of waste. You want to reduce that WIP and focus on increasing throughput. Let's pivot now to okay. go back to, let's, let's pivot to talk a little bit more about that process. When you walk into a shop and you're thinking about differentiation, you're helping somebody else tell their story. There tends to be both simultaneously the complaint about the perception of commodification. People only want to take, talk to me about price, et cetera. And yet also a lack of differentiation on behalf of the owner. If the consumer commodifies you, it's not nefarious. It's not malintent. It's what you've earned in the marketplace, derivative of your ability to market and message. Talk me through how you help companies position themselves. Yeah, so that's a really great point. So uh, let's talk about positioning because that's where we start. One of the first calls. So I, I do want to say as a sidebar that, you know, if I work with a client, I'm not necessarily dramatically changing the way you sell. I'm simply learning the way you sell 
and I'm learning what works and I'm sanding off all the, all the rough edges, right? And I'm just simplifying and amplifying what you do well. So that's why it is a service and not a template that I sell you, right? So, you know, someone asked me one time, they called me that you introduced me to, Jordan. They said, you know, don't you just give me the same playbook that everybody else has? Like, can I just write you a check right. and you hand me the playbook? And I'm like, no, 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 we can't do that because, you know, there's multiple, uh, you know, there's multiple property managers in every single market and they have different strengths and weaknesses and they're built for different types of customers. Um, so, you know, a great example of that is of a client that I love who uh, focuses only on being an accidental landlord for single family homes. Meanwhile, while I worked with him, I was working with a client who I equally loved, who was only, they were the investor's choice, right? And so they only took on portfolios of properties. So how could I give the playbook to the investor's choice to the accidental landlord, right? It wouldn't make sense. So that kind of illustrates positioning. So when I say Volvo, what do you think, Jordan? Safety. Safety, boom. So Volvo is known for safety and being known for safety allowed them to break into the North American market in a way that they could not have when they were a totally unknown player, right? Mm -hmm. Not because they were trying to compete with Ford and GM on what they already did and the other cars that were known at the time, the German cars, they were this, you know, unknown, you know, entity from a country that most Americans couldn't point out on a map. And they broke in by being known for safety. And so do you think that there are engineers at Volvo who are annoyed that nobody appreciates the performance they built? There are, there are uh, industrial designers who feel like they have the best leather in their seats, right? But Volvo knows better than to try to download that hard drive onto the floppy right. disk. The program right. for the floppy disk is safety. And that has served them very well. And so I'm challenging you guys out there listening to, you know, design your your positioning because everything goes from there. And so I always like to say there's two guardrails. So I like to think of, uh, I used to have my birthday parties at bowling alleys when I was a really young kid, like we all did. And they'd put up the bumpers, right? Because, you know, nobody knew how to bowl when you're like five. And so the bumpers for your sales process are two things. One, it's the stages that you need the prospect to go through, Right. You, you need to understand if the prop, you need to qualify both the property and the owner, right? You need to understand what their needs are. Uh, you, you need to see the property and help them set the rental rate, right? And you need them to sign an agreement. And if those things don't happen, then it's a recipe for disaster, right? So that's one bumper. The other bumper is the position, right? If, if a prospect's only going to remember one thing about you, which by the way, they're only going to remember one thing about you then those two things should guide the entire process. So there's more that goes into it, but I just want you to picture the bowling alley. And I want you to picture the steps that you have to go through on the left. I want you to picture your positioning on the right. Everything we do together, all the language we create, all the strategies and the techniques can't go outside the bounds because we got bumpers, mm. right? And that's mm. going to keep us focused. And, and it's really that simple. That's the starting point for sure. So the obvious question for me is, Jeremy, why can or cannot pricing be positioning? How does how does pricing relate? Because for a lot of folks, it feels like that there's that they're kind of trying to force pricing in the positioning hole. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. So uh, pricing can be a positioning if it's radically different, right? So if, if you've cut pricing down by ninety percent, right? <laughs> exactly. What you're not going to do. You know, you don't want to do. No, you don't want to do. You don't want to do. There's no margins. Right. But if you find a way to use drones and drive around and do everything and you don't have any employees. Right. One sure. day. I'm just sure. saying. But in business positioning, sale pricing can be a positioning. 
The problem is we as business owners think that 10% matters, 20% matters, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't even matter that Paylessa was selling for you know 10 times what Payless sold for and they were selling more of them. So honestly, my favorite pricing and positioning is actually charge more because when you're charging more, people pay attention, right? And mm -hmm. some people want to go with the highest price provider. So, the, so having said that, people don't care about pricing nearly as much as you think they do. And you're wasting your time. And you're, you're filling up that little floppy disk that they showed up with, with an insignificant message. So that's why we don't focus on pricing. We focus on so many other things that have so much more of a difference. You're conditioning the consumer to talk with you on the level of pricing. And then you wonder why you got commodified. Yeah. So I think there's, there's some self-fulfilling aspect of it there for sure. That said, haggling, discussing price at some point is going to come up in the sales process. So in terms of opens, when the conversation, when the door opens, you pick up the phone and you're dealing with somebody where the first question out of their mouth is, what's the price? What does it cost? What's your, what's your basic kind of reader on how to respond to that? All right. So, so I want to answer that question, Jordan, and don't let me forget because I do have a good answer, but, but I, I think that I would be doing a disservice if I didn't talk about a tangential subject when it comes to pricing. Okay. So, you know, we talked before about buying criteria. So, so every consumer, whether they, whether it's right or wrong, they have um, an unspoken set of buying criteria when they called you, right? So if I'm, you know, buying something that's a commodity, then my buying criteria might be who can do it cheaper without, you know, pissing me off, right? Just, you know, for lack, that may be their only buying criteria, right? Or they may want to know that the property is not going to go down in value and they're willing to pay more for that. That's a different set of buying criteria. So the most important thing for you guys to realize is that the consumer, right or wrong, either self-inflicted or competitor inflicted, they're calling you with buying criteria. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's our job to know what buying criteria we compete mm -hmm. on and to reset. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to give you an example that's not a property management example, just because it's so powerful. It was so powerful to me. So when we had the marketing agency, we were hired by a recruiting firm. And so, you know, I had personally had some bad experiences with recruiting firms on both sides of the pie. Um, I, I didn't really know anyone, you know, in the small business area that had a success with recruiting firms. And so I sat down with the owner and he told me, he said, you know, people call us and they're, they want to know how much we're going to advertise their job and how much we're gonna spend promoting their job, or they wanna know what the fee is, right? That's their buying criteria. But you know, we specialize in, in high level financial positions. And he's like, I gotta tell you, Jeremy, if you're hiring a CFO or you know, a really high level bookkeeper or financial analyst, like zero of those people are looking for a job. The only way to recruit those people is to go poach them away and steal them. Yeah. Right. And, do that. He goes, no one works for me as a recruiter that hasn't had a director or above level job at a, at a large firm. He goes, I have 15 CFOs for Fortune 100 companies in my cell phone. You know, we spend our own money to go to the conferences that they go to. And, and we just know the people and none of them are looking for a job. And so you may call another competitor of mine and say, well, you know, how big are you? What's your brand recognition? How are you going to advertise a job? And all you're going to be doing is advertising the people that you don't want to hire. He resets mm. the buying criteria. And, mm. and think about that. We tend to trust the people 
that turn us on to things, right? And so that that to me is one of my, my best examples. So once I knew that, and I knew that he won on that buying criteria, we designed everything we did, marketing sales process to reset. So I'm a big believer that uh, when a consumer is shopping something that has competition, right, which is what property management is, it's not like they can't Google this and find three or five right. property managers. And we, we probably all know, I, I've talked to so many of you guys, um, you get a call and you just know that you're like their third call, right? Or their mm -hmm. fifth call or their first of call and then it, it ends great. And then they say, okay, I got to call a couple more people. I'll call you back, right? So what they're doing in their mind is they're trying to create a matrix. You know, imagine the columns being you and the competitors and then the rows are the buying criteria. And they're trying to, that's how we get a landscape, right? That's probably how we buy everything. Think about the last major purchase you bought that you knew nothing about. That's probably what you did, right? And so- we want to be in charge of what rows they put on that mental graph, right? So they may have called with pricing and reliability and portfolio size. We may completely reframe that around transparency or add-on costs or whatever it is that you play well in with positioning, customer service, right? Portfolio management. You get, you get to set the rows of the buying criteria and then everything we do should be focused on that. When you do that, pricing is pretty irrelevant. Yeah. So here's some things that come to mind for me. Part of this relates to content marketing, right? I mean, this is ripe for educating the consumer when you're in the same way that you can set the buying criteria, which is down in the funnel. You can also do that above funnel as well. You can set the expectation for the quality of interaction that somebody should expect to have with a small business in this category. I think a parallel concept here, Jeremy, is the idea that as consumers, we're getting conditioned by experiences that have not from other categories. Here's what I mean by that. Gmail, Amazon, Uber have conditioned me to have certain expectations that I will project onto all vendors, even if it's a local property management company. Now, is that reasonable? I don't know, but I know it's true. I know that they have conditioned my expectations around speed, quality, service, UI, experience. Acknowledging that helps the business owner take more ownership over the intangible. This is kind of the whole uh, Michael Moore crossing the chasm concept. He refers to the idea of a whole product offering. We think of what we're selling sometimes as a really truncated, small, minuscule thing. When people are buying the whole experience, they're buying how you make them feel on the first phone call, the anxiety reduction that takes place by you demonstrating care and concern. There may be an anniversary gift, whatever it may be. Do you have any thoughts on kind of this, this, this chasm or gap that exists between the functional and the literal of what we do versus the whole experiential customer experience? That's interesting. Well, I, I do want to say that, you know, because I have the the uh, advantage of being an outsider, right? We we typically as entrepreneurs, we can't we can't read the label from inside the jar. Inside right. The yeah. yeah. And, and that's what we're doing. So, guys, if you're on this call, you are managing somebody's most expensive asset in their life. Rather, they're an accidental landlord and they can't believe they're about to let somebody else walk through their doors or they're a portfolio manager. And, you know, the difference in 1% over 10 years is going to be dramatic for them in terms of performance, right? So I think that we're underestimating, you know, how important, you know, how much emotion is wrapped up in what we're buying, yes. right? Yes. And so, yes, a, a $6 Uber ride across town while you're trusting your life with them has been commoditized, you know, but taking on 
and putting tenants and navigate putting tenants in my properties and navigating the laws for a 40 you know unit you know portfolio are not apples to apples right so so I, you know i just want to say that I, that's the one realization i think i've learned is is so many of the amazing community that you've introduced me to jordan you know they're taking for granted what they're doing and the risks involved and because you know they've heard it they've just heard the commoditization talk and they're underappreciating the value that they're adding yeah, absolutely. And I think that there is, I think there is a tangible difference between functional literal property management, which in many cases at its worst is a being a glorified gopher versus the story around wealth creation through real estate, financial security, and financial freedom through a qualified trusted advisor that thinks about the ultimate outcome, ultimate financial outcomes for your life while you're sleeping. There's a real chasm between these two things. Positioning is a part of that. Telling the story is a part of that. But so is the process of how you approach these communications. That also communicates a lot about the, the care and the forethought. What do they say? It's not going to get better after the first date or after the honeymoon phase, right? So how you're selling to them as you win them is how they're going to be over the long haul. So talk to me more about how you kind of structure the process to, to really make it shine. Okay, good question. So now we're getting like really down into tactics, right? So yeah. now we're getting more towards, you know, some of the best practices that we're bringing, um, especially from other industries, which like we talked about before, you know, really amplifies this entire thing. So I, I'm going to give you an example that I think is good because I don't have one, but I'm just going to pick one that I know is, is, is pretty um, illustrative of how we do this. So let's just say that Jordan, you and I get together and we're on, you know, you come visit me in Boca. And it's this time of year where like I was, I was, I was bragging that, you know, we have 60 and 70 degree days. And so we decide to go down to downtown Boca and I take you to one of my favorite places for lunch. And it's on this sidewalk cafe, right? Meisner Park. And so you and I are, are sitting outside having a great lunch. We've probably been there two hours, like most of our conversations go. And um, I, I'm telling you that I, I have this weird pain in my elbow, right? And I've been to a couple doctors and it's the weirdest thing and I can live with it. But, you know, I don't know what it is about it. Like every time I do a certain movement in the gym or I try to play golf or whatever it is, it just, it's driving me nuts. And I got to figure this thing out. And while I'm saying this, and we don't have a ton of these in Boca, but let's just say that a homeless guy was pushing a shopping cart right by us on the sidewalk. And he overhears us and he says, oh, do you have that crazy thing in your elbow? He's like, when you lift your arm above your head and you stretch your fingers, does it tingle from like the shoulder to the elbow? And I'm like, yes. And he's like, oh, and if you do this, does it go crazy and like spike all the way to your leg? And I'm like, yes, this is a homeless guy. And I'm going to be hanging on every word he says. He just described my pain better than I could describe it to you, right? There's no better way to build uh, authority and rapport than to say what our customers are thinking better than they can say it. That's wow. expertise in a bottle. When we can say what our customers are thinking better than they can say it, the trust is multiplied so much that I would take I would take recommendations from a homeless guy pushing shopping carts down the street because he just described my pain better than I could describe it to you. And so, you know, that's just one tactic that we need to build into the sales process if we truly know what our customers are going through. 
Wow. When I edit this for the video recording, I think I'm just going to rewind that section. That was so powerful. That's really worth sitting and meditating on because I know we've all experienced it firsthand. But Jeremy, what's even crazier is that you can do that zero to 60 in the course of one phone call. This is the concept of mirroring, right? The idea that as you listen to reinterpret and recommunicate in a way that even further refines, polishes, and clarifies the underlying emotional intent behind what was being stated. It also speaks to the difference between interests and positions. The interest is what I want. The position is what I say I want. If you can clarify, get past the position and address the true interest, there's such power in that. Um, man, that really speaks to me. I got to ask though, how transferable is this? It, it resonates with me because I think I got the juice, man. Like I think I got the chops for that as I'm bringing my BDM on board and I'm handing them a PDF how do you how do you train and, and convey that kind of uh, ability? That's a really good question. So uh, what, I'm gonna you know build on something that, that I've overheard you say, Jordan, that I can't believe I, I can't um, you know buy into enough, and that's that we do not want to be victims or beholden to hiring somebody who knows as much as we do as the business owner, right? So the way we sell as the business owner is not teachable to an employee. The biggest mistake I made for, for over a decade was looking for a salesperson who could replace me exactly, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So think about the authority and the autonomy we have as business owners, right? One, I can talk to you business owner to business owner, right? And by the way, if we got in a consultation, I'll do that, but that's not how I teach my salespeople how to do it, right? Because they can't mm -hmm. do it that way. So yeah. I, I can't you know, give them the autonomy to just change prices and make it up. Like I know you guys on the call probably do with some of your tenants, right? So it's a big portfolio, I gotta get this. Yeah, yeah, you want us to waive that fee, done. You know what I mean? We can't mm -hmm. train our salespeople to do that. That's chaos like we talked about. So we're not giving them the authority, the autonomy, they don't have the experience. But when we have a strong position and we know who our customer is and we're a lighthouse, right? We're a lighthouse on a beach. A lighthouse is insanely valuable to anybody trying to get into that harbor. It's kind of, you know, it's a little valuable to somebody who's just going down the coast that doesn't want to crash and get in the next harbor. But that that lighthouse doesn't run up and down the beach and wave its arms and try to get a boat to come into the harbor that's not going to the harbor, right? The lighthouse stays there. It has right. insane value for a very specific goal. That's what we have to design our companies as. That's the only, in, until we have unique positioning, strong, you know, foundation, and we truly know who we're helping, I can't design your playbook because your playbook can't be if they're customer A, do this. If they're customer B, do that. If they're customer C and you want to go all the way down to G, right? It's going to be insane. You're never, and that's what we're doing as business owners when we're selling. So I think I answered your question in a different way than you probably were expecting me to, but yeah, that, we need that foundation before we can build your playbook. So what I took from that is there is moral conviction that comes from experience. Belief drives action. It drives the form of certainty that prospects want. Sales in large part is about certainty. If you don't believe it, you can't sell it with conviction. As the business owner, my certainty and my belief is going to be different than that of my team member. For me to bring on a team member and provide them the structure and the program and the intent and the forethought in how they sell is a way to transfer that belief in the process. Um, and, and I think that's really something that can't be 
understated. And what's disappointing to me, what's challenging is to see folks hear about the idea of hiring a BDM and to say, hey, great, you know what? I'm kind of sick of doing that or I wasn't great at it. Somebody else can do it. The first light bulb, somebody else could do that. And then they get up to doing it. But when they take that, that step of actually putting it in place, a lot of times folks will come back to me six, three, nine months afterwards and say, hey, it just didn't work out. They, they just weren't performing. But when we dig into the conversation, the things that come up is a lack of process, is a lack of intent. And oftentimes what's really aggravating to me is to see compensation be used as a replacement for management. Surely you've seen this before, man, where somebody says, hey, I don't really know what the hell I'm doing, but hey, let's make the base zero, make it all variable uh, performance-based comp. And what's the worst that could happen? Well, the worst that could happen is you just waste, wasted six to 12 months of your life. You just part your pipeline by putting it into a dysfunctional process. Have you seen folks using compensation as a, as a management replacement? Yeah. So, you know, you and I both are E-Myth fans. I think we talked about that. So if Absolutely. you haven't read it, there's a great book that Joe and I are fans of called um, The E-Myth, right? I think that's the actual title. It's something, maybe something a little longer than that, but just Google E-Myth. It was the very first book I ever read, Michael Gerber. Someone gave it to me when I was 18. Um, and and you know what? I keep coming back to it. I've read thousands. I have a great library downstairs. Um, but I keep coming back to E-Myth because it's about the processes and doing the job first, getting it on paper, knowing what works, and then and then delegating it. Delegating, not abdicating. When I hear somebody is just going to bring in somebody, you know, and just pay them and they'll figure it out. So there's something else that I've since learned. So, uh, you know, I think I've told you uh, I'm a member of Entrepreneurs Organization. And if you know about EO, I'm, I'm essentially forced into a room with, you know, six or seven other business owners and I have to hear about their problems and I share mine with them. It's, there's more to that, but as a side effect, I'm hearing about their problems. I've been around these people for years and there's something that I've taken away that I don't think I've ever really said out loud before, but it's a rule that I work by. I think that there are two ways to hire somebody. There is the way that the E-Myth talks about where you design the job. That's what I'm selling, right? You build the playbook, you know it works, you hand it over and you can manage, mm -hmm. right? works unbelievably well. There's a second way to hire. You go out there and you find somebody like me who, who's done this before and you hire me and you stay out of my way because you literally say, Jeremy's built sales teams before. I'm going to go build someone who's done it before. He's going to set the expectations. I trust him. It's very hard to do at a small company because I would be extremely expensive. and I would probably want half your company, Budget. right? Yes. But that's what bigger, yes. that's what startups do. That's what bigger companies do. Now, those are both fine. You know where the danger zone is? Everything in between there, right? Mm -hmm. You either hire someone that you're handing them a playbook or you hire someone who's done this so many times that like, you know, that's just all they do. They're a machine. If you hire someone in the middle who you think can do it because they did it in insurance and you're just going to bring them in and you think, you know what I mean? I, I've seen this over and over again. That's the danger zone. And because you know why? Because so, so there's, there's a lot of great salespeople out there, guys. There's a lot. And of those great salespeople, right? They fall into two categories. There's people who can sell your product and there's people who can sell you that they're a great salesperson, right? And the worst thing you can do is hire one of those because you know that's my story that I mentioned to you before, Jordan. The very first salesperson I ever hired was this woman named Ann. And she was a great talker. 
and she was this tall woman and she had this amazing outgoing energy and she you know never really sold my kind of marketing services but she convinced me she could do it and she was great at closing big accounts and i'll tell you jordan she was one of the best salespeople i've ever hired and she showed up every day and sold me on what i should change about my company and how our pricing was wrong and she sold me that we should be selling a different way and we spent all our time and energy over like six months just working on the business instead of her out selling and it was the most expensive mistake i ever made and so without a playbook you know that's the danger that you're wading into is you're going to hire a sales like person who is a force and is going to convince mm. you that it, the company is the problem and yeah. it's not them man so we just kind of touched on using compensation as a crutch for active management, which is the same thing as using your pricing as a crutch or a replacement for having a good sales process. The thing that you just mentioned, it makes me think a little bit about the time that my sister came to me. She was just getting into sales and she had just, ha she had a company she really wanted to work for. She interviewed there and they said, they're not hiring. And this was in a sales role. And I told her two things. I said, number one, a good salesperson never takes no for an answer. And number two, great sales organizations are always hiring unlimited numbers of salespeople. There is no cap or quota on how many rock star, truly capable yep. salespeople you are. Those people are always employed, no matter what happens to the economy, no matter if they wind up in a wheelchair, they are handsomely compensated at all times. But those people get paid large sums of money. So if you have a fundamental deep moral conviction that you could never conceive of paying somebody 150 or $200,000 a year, that's okay. Just realize that's a cap on your aspiration for the talent that you're bringing in the organization. And you cannot use talent as a substitute for process either because you simply cannot afford it. The companies that we're working with, that just, it's not realistic. And even if you could do it, do you really want to? Do you really want to abdicate process? Do you really want to abdicate control and input on the, as the business owner on the single largest determiner of your long-term financial success, the economic powerhouse within the organization of sales and marketing? Do you really want to abdicate on that? I don't think that you do. So the opportunity here is to double down, lean into process. Let's talk about what process actually looks like. I mean, at the end of the day, if so, let's say with one of your clients, when somebody ends up doing an engagement with you, what does the final product look like? What is the finish line for an owner being able to say, I've done it. I now have a repeatable, scalable process. And, and what is, what does the fruit of that look like? How, how quickly can you hire and ramp somebody oh. at that point? So let me um, let me pay off something you said earlier. We were talking about pricing and you were saying, you know, we're forgetting that it's about the outcome, right? We're selling an outcome. We're not selling deliverables or our list of services. So mm -hmm. I sell an outcome, Jordan. So I can tell you what the deliverables are to, to be able to give you a, a contract and a scope of work. I kind of have to put deliverables in it, but I'm very upfront with my clients. Doesn't matter if it takes me six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks. Doesn't matter if I give you these four things or four more things. The outcome I'm selling you is the confidence that you can hire somebody on Monday and they're autonomous by Friday. And I'm one of the only people I know that believe you can do that. Yeah. And by the way, I choose okay. the word autonomous very uh, deliberately because it doesn't mean they're gonna be a rainmaker. It doesn't mean they'll even be as good as you, right? It's been five days. But if you can't hire somebody on Monday and know that, that you don't have to babysit them the following week, and by the way, the other outcome mm -hmm. is that within 30 days, you're gonna know if they're gonna work out. And so those two outcomes are ultimately what I wanted, you know, as a business owner, and that's what we sell. 
So when we're done, I ask my clients, I say, look, with the work we've done, you know, the documents you have, the transformation we've gone through, uh, do you think you can hire somebody, the right person on Monday, maybe at times by Friday? And they have to say yes for the engagement to be over. And then uh, there's all kinds of sub, you know, um, benefits that come from that. Like I said, you should know if they're going to work out within 30 days. So how do we do that? It's by having a repeatable process that they know how to sell. And so that starts with knowing what a sale looks like at your company. One of the biggest mistakes I see small businesses make is they don't create a crystal clear finish line for the salesperson. Your salesperson should not be trying to lease the property. Your sales, your, your BDM, which is I know the term we use, should be getting a signed agreement and handing it off to your team and supporting them. But winners like to see the finish line. And so it starts there. And then we work our way back and we create all of the milestones you have to go through. We create all the key language that that person, you know, every objection that you've handled um, should be in that playbook. And, and I'll tell you guys, if you're overwhelmed by hearing that, I have a mentor, Jack Daly. If you don't know him, look him up. He's great. Uh, Jack, D-A-L-Y. And he has built billion dollar mortgage companies. And he used to always say, you know, I had 2,600 employees at my largest sales firm. And I was famous for saying there's not 2,600 best ways to sell here, right? There is a sell that we're going to teach 2,600 people how to do. And when he speaks on stage, because I've heard him do this, he said he, he pulls out his little flip chart. He's not a PowerPoint guy. He's a flip chart guy. And he says, I bet you that there are not more than 10 reasons that your customer doesn't buy from you. I bet you don't get more than 10 objections in your business. And it's usually speaking to one company. So there'll be 60 people in the room and he'll say, I'll write the first four down and write price, you know, better competition, whatever. And he goes, if you guys can put more than 10 objections that don't fall into the same category on this flip pad, I'm buying drinks for everybody the entire night. And he's done that like a hundred times and nobody's ever won because there is a finite number of reasons. There's a finite number of objections customers have. They just come in different shapes and sizes. So it's actually much easier than you think it is to get those on paper and to, to arm your salesperson with the best response, not multiple responses, the most powerful best response to that objection. Man, so that really spoke to me. The three things you said, connecting the micro to the macro. Number one, autonomy. There is nothing that puts that pit in your stomach, like hiring somebody and realizing you need to babysit. Yeah. You, you didn't just delegate. You just added more network in your day. Number two, the ability to know if it's working or not. That's the other frustrating thing is when you're stuck in this quicksand yeah. of non-performance, but a lack of moral conviction of have I done enough? Have I coached them enough to be able to have them exit? And the third thing is you're focused on ultimate outcomes. That middle one is tricky. Jeremy, how do you know when it's just not going to work out? How do you know when it's time to break up with when you've made that hire and whatever it's, it's, it's you, it's me at the end of the day, non-results is non-results. How do you think through pulling the trigger on that? So there's a number of ways and I'll give you the simplest way to understand it. Um, you know, everybody on the call, I recommend you go out and get a great tool called lead simple, because if you have lead simple, you know, you know what your track record is today, right? So we're going to create the playbook you, the business owner, or you, the you know lead salesperson, um, will be using this. You know what to expect, right? If I get 10 leads, right, four of them are going to be junk. Four of them are going to move on to a you know an on-site consultation, and two just won't call me back, whatever it is, right? So we're going to benchmark you know reasonable success. And before you hire somebody, you want to sit down and get really clear and say, if I hired somebody 
I need them to perform a good person, not, not a average person that I would keep a good person. Somebody I would happily write a check to every single week or month, somebody that I would never want to leave my company. This is the minimum level of performance here. I need them to be able to get us, you know, you know, 40% onsite consultation, 20% close rate, whatever it is, we're going to set that in advance. Right. And, and that's it. It's, it's really that simple. The problem is we go in abstractly and we just say, well, we'll just see how it feels. Right. And then the emotion gets involved and you, you love the guy or the gal and she's a lot of fun around, but she's not closing any business. Mm-hmm. Um, sales is the one role you can't afford not to hire because a good salesperson is going to pay for themselves three, five, mm-hmm. 10 times over. Mm-hmm. And you need to be clear on what that looks like before you even write the job description. Because it's all going to come back to that outcome, right? And and who's that person, and how are they going to be successful? And you should know where they should be by thirty days. Um, and, and you know, I can help you with that. It's probably more conversation that we can do with one call. But you need to be really clear on where that person should be within thirty days, and you need to hold both you and them accountable to being that. Yeah, man, you are right. The, for me personally, this could be like a six-hour webinar. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't know if it's a six-hour webinar for everybody else. But let's do this. We're going to pivot into getting questions from the audience. Before we do that, um, Jeremy, I want you to let folks know about how to get in touch with you, guys. Here's where we're at. I've known Jeremy for a couple years now. He was actually introduced to me through uh, a client out in Florida in his neck of the woods, uh, Conrad. I, he was right I, down the hallway. Conrad, we shared actually. an office building. He was right down the hall. Yeah, that's Small so world. funny. So he made the connection, known each other for a while. We started doing some work together. We vibed well. And then you started producing results for my clients. And at the end of the day, that's how you really get me. That's how you can get some affection and love from this guy is generating results for results? my clients. You, Yes, exactly. <laughs> You've done that. And so we're ramping our work together. In 2019, we're going to be doing some more significant work together. You're going to be speaking at PM Grow. You're also going to be having a greater presence within the, the Lead Simple family and helping our clients build that a robust sales process. So look for that in 2019. But right now, guys, if you're listening to this right now and you're thinking to yourself, I have plans, I have ambitions, I have goals for 2019. I want to do this campaign, that marketing campaign. But if you feel like you're not currently in a place where you're 100% confident that every lead you put in that funnel is going to turn into either somebody that you had the moral conviction to say no to as quickly as and effectively as possible, or a profitable, great relationship and long-term client. Jeremy is a guy that can help build that out. Jeremy, what's the um, what's the best place for folks? Let's do this. Guys, if you're interested and you'd like to at least have a, a, a consult with Jeremy to just kind of talk through some of the issues and challenges that you're facing in 2019, your specific company challenges with sales, go ahead and drop in chat or comment right now. Just go ahead and enter your email address and I'll make sure that either myself or Jeremy follows up with you for a free consult. Jeremy, if folks want to learn more about your positioning and, and your company, what's the best place for them to go? Well, yeah, definitely go to juicyresults.com. And, you know, to, to add to that, sending the email is totally fine. You know, we have a, a hidden page that we usually send to people once they kind of know what we teach. And it's juicyresults.com slash talk. And it's just a simple form. And what I'd like to offer you guys is just a, you know, a quick diagnostic that I like to do. Um, we, we have identified, you know, basically eight things that hold companies back from hiring salespeople and scaling. And that diagnostic will just ask you a couple questions. How, and they're just self-ranking. How am I doing on this? How am I doing on that? 
And then we can have a quick call and hopefully I can add a lot of value. Rather you want to work with us or you want to do it yourself. My goal is just to give you clarity, right? And to describe that pain in your arm better than you have so that you know what's going on. Because um, I'm not one of those people that thinks that sales cures all because you got to have a good company, right? Mm. I'm an amplifier, mm. but I will say this, no matter how good everything else is going, there's no worse hell than being in when you just can't sell and you can't delegate that and you can't scale the way that you want and there's no predictability to your company. And so I'm passionate about helping business owners fix that because that's what I suffered through for so long. I had successful businesses, but they were all dependent on me. And the only true freedom came when I started to be able to build a team and show them how to do that. And so I love to do that. And I love to have a conversation with you guys about that. I love it. So guys, I rarely do this because Jeremy has worked with 10 plus of my clients and generated results. I can officially endorse what he is, is doing. It's driven impact for clients. That link that he just mentioned, we dropped down below. Let's pivot now into just wrapping up with a couple of questions real quick. Guys, if you have questions, drop it down in the question section below. First question came from Matthew Tringali. You said you are the last piece of the puzzle. What are some pieces that you have seen missing when working with a client that you wish they had they had in a better position before you started the yeah. engagement? Great okay. question. I see so Ironically, Jordan, just about everyone that's come from your community has had a really fine-tuned business. And, and to a T, they were all saying, you know, we're great at managing or we know we know what the problem we have is and we just need one more person in this role. And, and to them, they've almost not brought that up. However, having said that, other industries, the parallels are is not being able to keep up with service, right? Not being able to keep up with demand. You know, I've had a guy who wanted to hire me and we had a great conversation. He said, Jeremy, if you brought on five new clients, like we'd go to business, like we're struggling. It's not the sales side, it's the people side. And I said, yeah, you fix that problem and you let me know, right? And so I want you to truly open new business with, with open arms, not with like this, oh my gosh, like don't bring them on too fast. So operationally you gotta be sound. And second, you know, you gotta have a business model that people like. Uh, you know, I'm a scaler, right? So you've got to have a recipe that people are buying into. It may not be at the speed you want them to buy into it, but you know that when the right client shows up, even if you can't describe who's the right client, why they're buying, you're seeing it happen, right? And I'm going to help you crystallize that and do more of that. So those are the first ones that come to mind, but kudos to your community because they all have to seem, seem to have these great businesses, whether they know it or not. Hey, I love that. Yeah. Appreciate, appreciate the compliment. You obviously don't want to be putting lipstick yeah. on a pig. Next question here. Do you think that every lead you receive needs sales funnel and or CRM, or should you use your CRM only to focus on leads that are interested in your service? All right. Well, this person has not read my book because, you know, and I, I should have had one on my uh, desk. So I wrote a tiny little book, like 60 pages. You can download it for free on the website, by the way. Uh, maybe Jordan, you can send that link out later. Um, I got into the CRM and the sales management side because at the marketing agency, so many of my clients were hitting the Inc. 500 list. And I, I was fascinated by what they were doing differently. And I created a quick little book called Seven Habits of Scalable Sales Teams. And each habit stacks on the next one. Habit number one is every, in caps, every lead goes into the CRM, right? Why? Because don't you want to know how much how many junk leads you're getting, right? Don't you want to know, you know, who's working out and why? And we have this funny, you know, we have this funny little habit as business development people where we make qualitative decisions too fast. And we say, 
oh, that's not that's not a real lead. I'm not going to call that person back. Right. So we want to force our biz dev people to follow our process unemotionally, mechanically over and over again. That means everything goes into the CRM no matter what. Yeah, so it's interesting. The first thing that comes to mind is here's one reason to not put it in the CRM because you want to be able to say some nonsense like I close 99% of my leads. I'm a 99% closer, which really means if I get in person and they're smiling and they like me and the sun is shining right, I'm going to close the business. It's kind of nonsensical. The close rate for for real apples to apples comparison has to be everybody that that you contacts you and is actually yeah. What, and what if you're spending three thousand dollars a month on AdWords? Wouldn't you want to know how many leads you you disqualified and turned down? Yes. I mean, that's insane. You know, information that you don't want to be losing. Absolutely. Question from Dana. This is an interesting one. Our biggest issue is where are these customers and these leads coming from? Besides Google searches and realtor referrals, we don't know. And I'd like to take control of our lead generation instead of waiting by the phone, hoping someone calls. Do you have any, can, can, is that something that, that yeah. you can speak to as well? The lead gen size. Yeah, so so I, I say all the time that the underlying framework of what I'm installing in my company and trying to help, you know, that we're trying to teach the world is that there are three pillars to scalable sales. So you need to have a selling system that's repeatable machine-like. Uh, you need to have a sales management system so you can find, hire, and manage these people. And then, by the way, you need consistent lead gen, right? Because it doesn't matter how many great salespeople you have if you can't consistently generate leads. So I have clients that will spend what I think are absurd amount of dollars on leads and marketing, right? Just because it's bigger than I'm spending. But it's not absurd because they know that they can turn every dollar into 10 or every dollar into two, right? So they're scientific about it. And so I would say that my guess is, Dana, is that you probably know where you could be advertising, where you could be marketing, but you're not confident to do it because you're not, you don't know exactly who your customer is. So you don't know how to target, which means you'll be wasteful in advertising. And two, potentially you're not confident that you'll be able to qualify and close that person quickly, right? Which is the sales process side. So there's a reason why that's the last pillar, because uh, I've joked with, with Jordan about this before. I think your sales process is a wood chipper, right? If you sell wood chips, then you need, your factory is like a wood chipper. If your wood chipper is broken, there's no point in buying wood, right? But all of a sudden, if you've got orders for your wood chips and you got a sharp wood chipper, you'll start, you'll start chipping antique furniture just to get the orders filled, right? Everything looks like wood to you. And so, you know, you got to get that wood chipper healthy in place, know who you're going for. And then it makes it so much easier and gives you so much more confidence to actually market and advertise, which is so necessary. I like that, man. So if I was going to riff, I would say the testing and experimentation culture that we certainly see promoted within Silicon Valley and startups, but for small businesses as well, people always want to ask, well, where, where do you get leads? Like, what's the silver bullet? If it was that easy... I'd probably be doing it myself in your market and I yeah. wouldn't tell you. You got to test, you got to figure it out. But if testing looks like trying five different things and they're fail, 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 because it's not about the quality of the leads, but your ability to convert them into prospects, you have no freedom to test. You have no freedom to experiment with different ad mediums. When you have, when you know that you have a tight process, you drop something into that funnel and good things are going to happen. The world is your oyster and you can then afford to open up your checkbook and try lots of different things, whatever. I mean, I have, I have some clients that do radio, you know, and that seems crazy to the bulk of my other clients because it's complicated and expensive. 
and Jeremy, you actually know who I'm talking about. This is a client that went went through the program. Radio would have been radio would have made me very uncomfortable had he not done the work to set the stage well dialed in sales process, but it was much more viable to take that risk and to write that very large check after he knew that he had his bases covered. So you want to build on a strong foundation. And I think the rest of it, you figure it out from there. But I know that outbound is within the realm of what you can coach and train on as well. Guys, um, I think we have one final question, then we're going to go ahead and wrap up. The last question is from John. M from Sarasota. How's it going, John? Good to see you here. How do you know if you need chickens or eggs? Build out lead generation first, then focus on sales or build out sales process simultaneously with lead generation. If you're starting from scratch in both departments, yeah. start with sales process. I'm so we, we do. That's our formula. Um, I, I think that if you're really at, at like stage one, you might have to um, you might have to grow your chickens and your eggs a little bit at the same time. But in terms of going all in and saying, I'm going to make this a priority in a project, we think sales process is first. And, and out of doing that, because let me tell you why. Let me give you the qualifier to that. There's nothing worse than generating a boatload of leads that you got nobody to close. You don't know how to close. And, and I think that we'd all, uh, you know, we forget this sometimes, but when you don't have a defined sales process, a ton of leads actually creates a lot of anxiety, right? Because you're not sure what to do with them and you got to talk yourself into calling them and you got to get, you know what I mean? Like, so, it, you know, it, it creates a real problem. I, even me, you know, I never think I have any lack of salesmanship or confidence. You threw me in a business where I didn't know what I was selling in that business. And all of a sudden you give me a bunch of leads. I'm like, all right, I got I to gotta do some research and I got to get a game plan together. And it creates all this friction. You want your people to be the lighthouse. You want them to pick up that phone and by your people, sometimes that's you and that's totally fine. You pick up the phone, you know how to qualify, you put your value proposition out there and they decide if they're a fit or they're not and you hang up and you call the next one. And when you have that confidence that it works, then you know that takes all that friction away. So for that reason, we focus on the sales process first. The other thing I'll say is that out of doing that, what we find is that working on a sales process, especially with an outside person, I can't tell you how often, Jordan, as a, as a uh, residual benefit to the sales process, we identify a new way that they can be generating leads that they never thought of. Love it. Yeah, just comes from really knowing your target market and where those people are at. I think as with any area of the business, when you lean in, when you take ownership, when you really focus, better outcomes are what comes out of that. Could not agree more. Start at the bottom of the funnel and build your way up. That means that of the smaller number of outcomes that happen, they happen 100% consistently rather than having a lot of outcomes that are at 80 or 90%. You got a lot of leads, but who knows what's happening? Let's stuff more leads in. It's expensive, painful, and it's sad. So Jeremy, I appreciate you coming on today. I'm looking forward to having you speak at PM Grow. Um, for those that want to check out the ebook, I'm going to drop that in the email that I send out. But what's the link? Where can they go? You know, if I remember right, I think it's just juicyresults.com slash CRM. I think we created that like as a simple link. And if that's wrong, I'll follow up. But if you're still on the call and you're anxious, try that. That's yeah, it. Yeah. It's, free download. it's available on Amazon for like seven bucks. And it's like I said, you can give it to your whole team. I send them to my clients all the time, but you know, you don't have to pay for it. Just get it for free if you want it. Hey, appreciate you coming on. Looking forward to the work that we're doing in 2019. And uh, thanks for, thanks for caring. Happy holidays, caring everyone. A um, lot of fun. I love your community. They're so engaged and, and I'm just, I'm immensely impressed by the businesses that they're building when I get to meet them. So uh, awesome community, Jordan. Thanks again.
Yeah, fun vertical to be in, man. Thanks for playing in our space. Thanks for being on, guys. We'll talk to you soon. we got another webinar coming up next week. Next week, we're going to be talking about budgeting forecasting. So right now, we're talking about the sexy stuff, the sales, <laughs> the juice. But hey, what about the bean counters? What about the numbers? They're going to get some love, too. We're going to be talking about that next Friday. Look for an announcement coming out soon. Thanks for being on, guys. We'll talk soon. Take care, guys. God bless.